Well, if you were asked what is the very top issue for Metro Vancouver residents and voters as we are continuing in this federal election, what would your answer be? And the activities that took place in many parts of Metro Vancouver and many parts of the world on Friday might give you a bit of a hint. Let's bring in Mike Klassen, who is a columnist at the Vancouver Courier and has written about this. And Mike, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Uh, You've written about this. uh, Not a huge surprise, or maybe it is a surprise to some people that climate change, uh, global warming is still very much top of mind and is something that people are looking at uh, when they go to the ballot boxes. I was, I confess, um, surprised at how big the number was for the Mostel poll, which was commissioned by the Vancouver, Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Uh, And it did survey business leaders as well as uh, residents in Metro Vancouver, and uh, the, the the climate and the environment was sort of off the charts, as they say. It was about 49% considered it to be a top issue, uh, with the economy and healthcare and affordability sort of dropping down uh, in much lower numbers. So, uh, you know, and I actually sort of leaned over to somebody who was um, at the event uh, where they did a presentation about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, who is working on one of the major campaigns in, in Metro Vancouver. And they confirmed to me that, yeah, that's what they're hearing as well. And I'm hearing that from other people who've been on the doorsteps. It's a big issue. And, and But there are other polls. I know we saw some other numbers come out this past week, too, saying, okay, this is a big issue for people. Would you be willing to pay more in taxes? How much more would you be willing to pay to fight this? And a pretty big response in that question was nothing. Yeah. Um, and so that's what sort of led me to my column, because the next question is, who's, you know, how, how is that going to change the layout of the House of Commons? How many people are going to be voting uh, for change around environmental issues? And, and truthfully, I think the, the, the challenge for anybody who's really focused on environment as a top issue is who do you actually vote for? Who has a sort of a practical plan that can potentially get done that could, you know, help to mitigate some of the concerns around uh, climate change. And for a lot of people, it's a really urgent issue. And and I suppose they might want to just vote for their local Green candidate because Green's always talking about the environment. But of course, other parties have all had their platforms as well. This sort of disconnect is what one person uh, by the name of Roger uh, Pilkey down in the U.S. called the Iron Law of climate policy, that uh, the public is only so willing to be able to get behind these issues, especially when it starts to hit them in the pocketbook. So I guess the next question is, you know, what are the practical solutions that we should be aiming for to, to actually make some changes? And there does seem to be a bit of a disconnect there. And again, this is one poll that looks at the number one issue. So if we were to take that at face value and say 49% or about half of the people say that it is the number one issue. But at the same time, I think if you did a poll asking people, do you think gas prices are too high? Do you think you're being nickeled and dimed or are you having trouble getting by because of these taxes? People would also agree with that. And there does seem to be that disconnect between the two. Precisely. And, and and that's where some of the changes that, that uh, the politicians are looking at become impractical and politically unsaleable. And whether you like it or not, and I kind of like it, we have a democracy in Canada and, and much of the West. And so we elect officials to, to lead us and um, they have to count on our vote. And if they make things too, uh, they put too much burden on us, especially financially, 
um, they will be kicked out of office. So how does somebody get into office short of a complete dictatorship and somebody waving a magic wand that says, here's what you're going to do, take it or leave it? Um, What are the practical solutions? And right now, most of the debate has been circulating around the carbon tax, which has its many critics. Um, you know, I was uh, pretty excited about it when it was brought uh, brought in by Gordon Campbell uh, about a decade ago. And the reason being, it was supposed to be revenue neutral. In British Columbia, the carbon tax is no longer revenue neutral. Um, and, and also, it disproportionately hits people on low incomes. Uh, and that's another big problem with the carbon tax. So, you know, I've been looking at this issue and sort of saying, what are the perhaps better ways that we can start addressing this I had the best example that was given me was um, when we took the lead out of gasoline is a, is a really great way of showing how we, instead of sort of taxing the, ta- um, the fuel, we actually regulated it out. And this is something that started in the 1970s in North America. And by 1990, all lead was out of gasoline. And, and today, the net price of gasoline is actually lower um, than it was in that time, even though we took, uh, you know, asked the oil companies to get rid of lead. I think that if we started talking to, to some of the energy producers saying, okay, now we're going to re- regulate you instead of taxing you to death, we're going to regulate you to try and lower the amount of emissions. I think we might actually start seeing some real positive changes over time. And that's just one of many things that we may start have to start looking at. Yeah, that might uh, be more effective than, say, uh, civic councils writing them letters saying, boo, please pay for the pollution you're causing. Well, and that's it. I mean, the, the fact is, is that a lot of the, um, the noise around this issue, the shouting, has not led to um, really good climate policy. In fact, I think it's perhaps even um, setting those efforts back because this is an extraordinarily complex issue. As Pilkey said in a recent column that he wrote for Forbes, uh, we don't know how to do, we don't know how to solve this, uh, this problem yet. And just shouting about it is not going to get us there. It's, and, and panicking, as, as we've heard lately, is not the way to deal with it either. This is what you need to get the smartest people in the room and try and figure out how to solve these problems. And, uh, and we're not doing that right now. And I think that we could probably be asking um, people who are going to elected office, what are they going to do? And, and, and I don't think just taxing people is the best idea. And I think that'll prove itself out over time. Uh, do you think there's also uh, things get so swept up in extremes in that? And we saw this on Friday and it was amazing to see the crowds and the people that came out on Friday and raising uh, raising awareness about this and really being passionate about doing something. But on the other end, you also hear people warning that we are in for a mass extinction and it's going to be happening sooner than you think. And it doesn't take much to do a bit of research to find people arguing science on the other side of that, saying actually, yes, climate change is an issue, but we are not facing a mass extinction that is alarmist and it's not helping at all. It's just scaring people. And it doesn't seem like there's any kind of common sense middle ground. I completely agree with you to see people taking to the streets and it was a very nice uh, friday afternoon and a day off school but it was fantastic to see all of that passion for the planet and for the community coming out and it was a lot of young people and uh, and their families and and educators um but i do think that if you start to peel away on the message it's very apocalyptic and i can't imagine how hard my my daughter is now graduated out of high school and she has her own concerns but i can't imagine having like a 10 year old in my household basically saying to me 
you know, daddy, um, uh, it's everybody's telling me 10 years from now, I'm going to be wiped off the planet. I mean, how could you deal with that at home? Gosh, when I was a kid, I was thinking about going to, you know, to the moon. I mean, I, it was all about hope and, and opportunity. And, and what this message is, has been extremely dire. And I, I just, I feel for families who are probably hearing this at home, we have to be optimistic. We have, as a society, we have been going, uh, taking leaps and bounds in terms of improving health outcomes. Things are going very well. We live longer. Um, but, you know, generally the world is getting better. We can check, take on this challenge with the climate and we have to put our minds to it and not scare the, you know, the Jesus out of everybody. Exactly, because I'm not sure what people think. And, and you make an excellent point about a 10-year-old, and I've seen more and more people on social media talking about exactly that. Their kids coming home, uh, they're they're scared because they've been told over and over again exactly what you just said. We're all going to die in 10 years, which simply isn't true uh, and also not constructive. When the goal, everybody has the same goal of tackling this, but these scare tactics don't seem to be helping anybody. There is a big gap between reality and, and sort of policy. And, and unfortunately, um, I think the more sage um, thinkers on this one are not being heard right now. And we have to give them the space to be able to, to have this conversation. And, and I can't tell you, I mean, I heard the premier himself in a speech on Friday saying, you know, there's no debate. We can't debate with, um, you know, the kids. Well, the fact is, is that there's a lot more to this story that needs to be explored and, and a lot more conversation. Um, and by saying that we can't have that conversation anymore is the wrong approach. So I hope that um, I hope that we come out the other side of this, not panicking, uh, but being positive and coming up with ideas that are going to actually uh, make a difference and, and help uh, keep the, the planet on a, on a good path. Exactly. Uh, were you surprised at all, though? I mean, I guess one of the other disconnects when you and you wrote about this in that uh, the poll, this one particular poll saying it's the number one issue, uh, you would think voting wise then if that was true and the majority of people or half the people are, are their number one issue is the environment. Uh, you would think that that would that would translate into a much higher percentage of a population or a popularity for the Green Party. Um, and we may see some um, some uh, progress for the Green Party. There's a debate uh, as to how much of the NDP vote that they're taking or the Liberal vote. Um, I think that the uh, Conservative vote is probably not the, uh, having this as high an issue, although I do think that a, con- a lot of Conservative voters are very concerned about the environment. Um, will it translate into any kind of change? Well, I think, you know... Uh, the thing about this federal election so far, and we're well into it, and there's only, um, uh, uh, I guess, about two and a half weeks left until we go to the polls. Um, uh, this has been kind of an election about nothing. It feels like it's the Jerry Seinfeld show of, of elections. We haven't found the issue, and then they bounced all over the place. And, and I think everybody's playing it extraordinarily safe, um, really worried that they're going to uh, upset voters in some way. So I finding a lot of the policy announcements have been very lackluster and and um and who knows uh but if if somebody does sort of step out of the pack and um and have a uh, an idea that that would be practical that would that voters would like around um dealing with climate change then maybe they will um uh, take off and and um and have a big upset like we saw in the 2015 election but right now uh, it's anybody's guess as to who's actually going to form government That is very, very true. All right, Mike, we'll leave it there, but thank you again so much. Great to have you back on the show.
Always a pleasure. Thanks, Jill. Right now, as I mentioned, we are going to take a look at uh, some a new study, a new survey that takes a look at optimism, among uh, other things, around the world. And Canadians, well, we're not too bad when it comes to being optimistic. Uh, but joining me on the line is David Bishop, who is the Director of Strategic Communications at Expo 2020. David, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, it's a real pleasure, Jill. Uh, talk a little bit about this because this was a survey, I think it was 20,000 people taking a look at our optimism, looking forward to the state of the planet. Do we think that our lives are going to get better? What do we have to do to make them better? And some very interesting findings. Yeah, absolutely. So just in just over a year's time, Dubai is going to be hosting the next World Expo. Um, and we're aiming to put on the world's greatest show of human brilliance and achievement, bringing together 192 countries, 25 million people to celebrate inspiration and, and particularly to inspire a better future. Um, and that meant for us that we really wanted to understand what people around the world are, are feeling about the future. Are they optimistic? Are they concerned? Um, and what are they particularly interested in seeing the future looking like? We worked with YouGov to survey more than 20,000 people across 23 countries. Um, and we were actually quite pleasantly surprised by the findings. People globally are on the whole more optimistic than not. Um, on average, 56% of people globally feel that the future is going to be better. Um, and Canadians are more so. 62% of Canadians think that the, uh, the future is going to be great. And did you ask why people thought that? Yeah, so we, we drilled down into what, what are sort of people's motivations across each of the uh, 23 countries where we ran this survey. Um, and in Canada's case, the data particularly shows um, Canadians have a very strong belief in humanity. Um, they place a lot of emphasis on the role of individuals and of community. Um, and particularly, Canadians want to see more in the way of knowledge sharing for the future, more dialogue and more collaboration across countries. And that's exactly what you know, the World Expo that's going to be here in Dubai next year is about, bringing together every country on Earth, millions of people from around the world, in that spirit of sharing and dialogue and collaboration to find ways to make the future better. Uh, interesting. And and taking a look at that, uh, like you said, or the, the survey shows too, nine in 10 people, I think it was, uh, that believe things will get better. Um, and I would imagine that varies a bit country to country, but uh, very, in, in really boiling it down, a very positive message. Yeah, I think a, a very positive message and some really sort of interesting findings that sit beneath that. I mean, I think one of the things that really stood out for us when we looked at the uh, Canadian responses was just how important Canadians view sustainability as a priority for the future. Um, three quarters of Canadians hope that the seas are going to be plastic free by 2050. Um, and carbon free travel is a priority for 55 percent of Canadians um, versus you know, just 26% of Canadians who, who see AI as being um, you know, one of the most important developments for the future. So that sustainability message coming through um, really, really strongly and reflecting one of the things that we hope to do here at Expo 2020, which is to show people some of the incredible technological and social advances being made around um, improving the environment and, and really sort of inspiring people to go away and implement those in their daily lives. And I guess that's one of the big questions when you talk about that, the respondents, uh, Canadian respondents saying uh, they're optimistic, they would like to see the oceans plastic free and, and travel carbon free. Uh, one thing to say we would like to see this, and this is a great goal, it's quite another thing uh, to ask about or talk about what we as Canadians or anybody on the planet is actually doing to make that happen. 
And I think that's that's why we why we did this survey, Jill. It's the opportunity for us to understand what people think and feel. Um, and yeah, for us, it's it's the start of a conversation that brings millions of people together here in Dubai next year to really explore what is possible from a social sense, um, but also in that technological sense. World Expos have always been about showcasing the cutting edge of innovation. And here, in fact, we have a sustainability pavilion that is going to be entirely self-sufficient, both in water and in energy. Um, it's an incredible engineering achievement. Um, but the point is demonstrating that it can be done. And if it can be done here in Dubai, it can be done anywhere in the world. And that's exciting. And that's something that we can go away as, as individuals and as societies and build on and take forward. And was there a, a, a reason that Dubai was chosen or is there a formula as to where the expos are held? So World Expos happen every five years. Um, of course, there was a very successful World Expo in, in Montreal um, some time ago. Um, the most recent World Expo was in 2015 in Milan. And it's, it's like any other mega event, a host city or sort of a, a city that wants to host the event um, bids for the right to do it. Dubai um, fought off against strong competition. And it really was that sort of sense of you know, a city which is already associated with it being futuristic, but it's also at the crossroads of the world. It sits between India and Africa. It's in the Middle East. Uh, you know, this is the first time for a World Expo, an event that goes all the way back to the Great Exhibition in London in 1851 that has been in Paris several times. Um, we all know the Eiffel Tower, of course, and that's uh, a structure that was built for a World Expo in the 1880s. You know, this is the first time that it's happened in a you know, in a different part of the world, in a developing part of the world. And that's a really exciting opportunity. And that's why uh, why Dubai won the right to host it and, and why we're so excited about putting this you know, incredible show on in 2020. And it is interesting, an interesting choice, because I would imagine if the respondents in a survey like this uh, from Dubai would be would be different, obviously, than other cities and other countries around the world. But that kind of goes to the one of the questions about uniting to make the world a, a better place and uh, uniting and, and f- drawing on the strengths of the different places. Exactly. And that's I mean, Dubai you know, is home to people from 200 different nationalities. It's no stranger to bringing the world together to bringing people together in a spirit of optimism and hoping for a better future. Um, What's really exciting is being able to do that on this incredible scale, 192 countries, 25 million people, um, and 173 days of putting on the world's greatest show. Um, Yeah, that's an incredibly exciting thing. All right. Well, looking forward to, to hearing more about this and some very interesting findings from the survey, especially uh, taking a look at uh, Canadians here and how we are viewing uh, the world and moving forward. Uh, thank you so much for taking some time and uh, joining us this morning to talk about this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks very much. So we're going to take a look at some of the highlights from the UBCM, the convention that just wrapped up on Friday in Vancouver. And let's bring in Mike Smith, host here on CKNW, also columnist at the province. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Jill. It was an interesting UBCM convention for sure. This is always a a really interesting one with all the mayors and councillors from around BC all gathered in one spot. And one of the highlights that jumped out for me was that big... uh, forestry protest we saw earlier this week with over 300 logging trucks just rolling in to downtown Vancouver. So that one really jumped out at me as a very effective protest. And 
It's also an interesting measurement of how the provincial government is performing uh, these days. And I didn't think that this was uh, a particularly good UBCM convention overall for the John Horgan NDP government. I thought the UBCM delegates passed a lot of resolutions that were reflected negatively on the government. And I thought Horgan gave a bad speech uh, this week, Jill. So, yeah, I don't I don't think it was the, the best one we've ever seen for the NDP. I, I was there for the speech. And, uh, yeah, what'd you think? Uh, well, and I agree with uh, a lot of people, and I was thinking the exact same thing while it was happening, that it was one of the worst stand-up comedy routines I'd <laughs> ever had to stand through. Yeah, uh, I mean, Horgan, he does these dad jokes things, which yeah. are, is, I guess is kind of part of his brand now, because there have been some... And I think he picked up from media profiles of this that he liked to tell the dad jokes, and now he seems to be kind of doubling down on it. So just too many, though. I mean, too many dad <laughs> jokes. I mean, he's making jokes about people in the Kootenai smoking weed. And, you know, at one point he called Andrew Weaver Minister Weaver by mistake, and he turned that into a gag. And he had this pointless story about a race between a chicken and a dead duck that I still don't understand. Maybe you got that one joke, Jill, but... I did not. I, no, I, I didn't get it either. No. So, I mean, these dad jokes are kind of part of his brand now, but, uh, you know, it's he's gone from kind of Hulk Horgan, the guy with the bad temper, to Premier Dad, who tells these bad dad jokes, but I've always sensed that maybe the Hulk was just still lurking under the surface there, but um, I just thought it was a bad speech, especially at a time when a lot of communities are really are hurting here with uh, economically, especially forest-dependent communities like we saw with that big protest this week, too. Well, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, because we were talking about the, the protest over at Global as well, and, and thinking back and looking and saying it was interesting to see it because we haven't seen that kind of passion and that kind of rallying that if you go back just a few years in BC history was quite common and you you know those unions could bring the province to a halt if they wanted to what I did find interesting was uh, John Horgan mentioned it in the speech but then in the scrum after the speech he was asked several times about the rural dividend fund and about the protest and about helping uh, forestry communities uh, that are dependent on it Uh, and his response was basically well when I was a kid I asked for things all the time too and I didn't always get what I wanted right away and I'm just fine oh I thought that was an outrageous quote and I was very surprised by that and you watch the liberals will be repeating that quote and reminding people of it. Horgan is very lucky he did not say that up on stage, but saying it in a media scrum is almost as bad. To compare these communities that are dependent on the forest industry and they've seen this brutal downturn in this industry, over 3,000 people out of work, many more in spin-off jobs, I mean, you're talking these small towns in many cases that have got nothing but the local mill, and the government raided this local fund, this this rural dividend fund, as you mentioned, to fund this bailout project. They they basically took money out of this very popular, important program for these communities, and then he turns around and says that compares them to kids like you're saying you're whining like a needy little kid come on i thought that was very very uh bad of horgan to to say something like that and um that'll be the liberals will remind people that he said it
Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, uh, what else do you think? I always find the UBCM in that it's a lot of politicians in a room. They're passing a lot of resolutions. But is there really a purpose? Does it really lead to any kind of legislative change or policy change? Well, I think it's really a networking opportunity for a lot of these local governments and to get face time with these uh, cabinet ministers. I think that's the most one of the most important elements of the UBCM is where it's almost like speed dating where these cabinet ministers will do these does literally dozens and dozens of meetings trying to meet as many mayors and councillors as possible and I think that's a good thing I think it's good for mayors and councillors to be able to sit down with this higher level of government and, and lay out their concerns and priorities for uh, for the province so I think that that is a good thing some of the resolutions are interesting a lot of them are of course they're non-binding but they're an interesting reflection on the priorities of local government there were re- uh, resolutions on on climate change um, we saw a big, amazing demonstration on climate change this week as well the this rural dividend fund that, that you mentioned there was a lot of anger about that and there were resolutions from local government calling on the the province to respect their autonomy and their local decision making so we've seen things like a local government's upset with some decisions of the province. A good example of that is the modular housing project that for the homeless, they got forced into Maple Ridge, where the local government's very unhappy with the province on that. There's a lot of local government anger over the speculation tax, the health employer tax. So the B.C. government got an earful here, and a lot of it is non-binding. There was a, a resolution to lower the voting age to age 16, for example, and that's a non-binding resolution, of course. It's up to the province to make a change like that. But you never know. Horgan has said that he's interested in maybe lowering the voting age. So if he gets a signal like that from the UBCM, maybe that's a signal that he might go for it later. So I, I think the UBCM is, is an, uh, an important and an effective body. That, and uh, I think they do a good job there. Uh, a couple of the other uh, issues they've touched on uh, as well, uh, like you said, climate change was one, uh, yeah. single-use item uh, bans, although we've seen in Victoria, that one's uh, kind of uh, caught up in the courts now. Um, a lot of them issues too, like you said, getting the attention of the government, I suppose, but they still need permission or they still need something yeah. to change if they actually want to do something different. Yeah, I mean, the, a lot of this is... Uh, these resolutions that are passed are non-binding and it's up to the province to actually go forward and do some of this stuff. So, but I, I always think they're an interesting kind of indicator of where the province is heading and also a really, a really revealing barometer about the standing of the provincial government uh, throughout the regions. And I thought there were some warning signs going off there this week for this government, for sure. Another one that jumped out at me this week, Jill, was that Chinese government reception mm-hmm. that went ahead as planned. Uh, there was a lot of controversy uh, about this reception. You had uh, Brad West, the Port Coquitlam mayor, there leading the charge against it, saying, why are we taking money from the government of China when they're pursuing policies that are not in our interest? They're effectively holding two Canadians hostage over there in, the, in a lot of these disputes. And, and yet you got the UBCM uh, t- breaking bread with them and taking money from them. That resolution, uh, that uh, reception went ahead as planned. Some mayors did show up. Richmond Mayor Malcolm Brody was there. Victoria Mayor Lisa Helps was there. But I suspect that will be the last uh, Chinese government reception you see at the UBCM. There was another resolution passed on the floor of the convention, 65% of delegates voting against accepting sponsorships from foreign governments. So I suspect that that is the last Chinese government reception you will see at the UBCM. Hmm. And that would be an interesting change, definitely, if, if that uh, happens moving forward. 
Yeah, and Brad West, the kind of the crusading mayor of, of Poco, has really kind of led the charge on this thing and has really boosted his own personal profile on this issue. And there, there was one dr- dramatic moment where some of the protesters, the pro-democracy Hong Kong protesters who were outside that reception, gave him two boxes of Tim Hortons donuts and said, "Could you? these are for the two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Korvig, those two Canadians being held by China. Could you give these to the Chinese government people and, and send them over to the two Michaels? Obviously, you know, a, just a symbolic gesture. And Wes said he tried to do that. They wouldn't accept the donuts. He put them on the doorway of the reception with the pictures of the two Michaels on them as kind of a reminder to people attending this reception. He took some criticism for doing that. Some people thought that was a bit of an over-the-top stunt. But again, this is a guy who's, I think, on getting a lot of public support for his stand on this issue, and I think he's going to win on it in the end. The reception went ahead this year but I don't think you'll see another one. All right. Uh, interesting uh, interesting times yeah. coming out of there. Mike, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again. Yeah, you bet, Joel. Well, turning our focus to south of the border for the next few moments, the very latest on what's happening with the U.S. president and possible impeachment. President Donald Trump's personal lawyer now says he'd only cooperate with the House impeachment inquiry if his client agrees. Central to the investigation is the effort by lawyer Rudy Giuliani to have Ukraine conduct a corruption probe into Joe Biden and his son's dealings with the Ukrainian energy company. Trump echoed that request in a July call with Ukraine's president. The House Intelligence Committee is leading the inquiry. Giuliani says he thinks the chair, Democrat Representative Adam Schiff has, quote, already prejudged, unquote, whether Trump linked USAID to Ukraine in exchange for the probe. Giuliani told ABC's This Week that he wouldn't cooperate with Schiff, but if Trump decides that he wants Giuliani to testify, he will, in fact, testify. Schiff says he has not decided whether he wants to hear from Giuliani. So that was the latest story to move on the wire about what's happening in the U.S. So when it comes to impeachment, let's bring in Jeffrey Myers. He is a lecturer with Thompson Rivers University. Jeffrey, thank you so much for being back on the show. Oh, hi, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Where do you see things going or how do you digest or break down what we've seen so far when it comes to the impeachment inquiry? Well, I mean, first, I think listeners have to understand that, you know, since the conclusion of the Mueller um, report, which was made largely publicly available, and which found that it couldn't uh, make a, there was no possible, um, you know, case with overwhelming evidence for conspiracy. Uh, The reason being in that case with Russia, of course, right? And the reason being that there was no uh, clear evidence of a solicitation, and that was a required element of uh, conspiracy. Uh, And then the second case, uh, major case, second half of the Mueller report addressed the question of obstruction um, of justice and basically left that open to Congress. And so what happened after that is that Congress used that as a basis to carry on with its investigation. But things significantly changed um, over the last week when a group of seven moderate um, congressional Democrats who had previously urged against impeachment wrote an op-ed 
uh, I think in the Washington Post, uh, basically recommending that saying that they had now thought he crossed the Rubicon. And again, that crossing of the Rubicon occurred in the context of the phone call, uh, which a whistleblower uh, released uh, the record of and uh, which or sorry, that the Trump administration released the record of and then a whistleblower, a report was released on in which Mr. Trump speaks to uh, Vladimir Zelensky, who's the new uh, president of the Ukraine, and suggests this quid pro quo that uh, if he is to uh, assist uh, in looking into Mr. Trump's main political rival at this time, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden's uh, connections, as you indicated in your intro, um, his activities, his son's activities, I should say, in the Ukraine, that he would release aid that had already been allocated by Congress. And so this changed the game, as it were, and caused uh, Nancy Pelosi, who had been holding back the dam and worried about the political results of pursuing impeachment to agree that it should happen and to escalating things into a more official inquiry uh, whereupon the likely outcome although not the certain outcome is filing of articles of impeachment and that would then lead to uh, a senate on those article uh, of trial in the senate the upper house uh, on those articles of impeachment and the possibility if uh, 67 senators are to agree uh, to a conviction to the removal of mr trump from office and you know we can game out the likelihood of that but that's that sort of where we're at in a nutshell. And what pl- comes into play, do you think, at this point, in that some uh, people I've been seeing uh, online and in various reports have been saying the first thing Donald Trump needs to do is stop tweeting about it and stop throwing these so, these statements and things into the Twitterverse, which could come back to hurt him or uh, use, be used against him. What do you think needs to happen or will happen next? Well, in terms of what's going to happen next, I think that, as I say, that the there are, um, you know, first, I think it's important to, to say this, that, I mean, Mr. Trump long ago fired all of many of his lawyers who, whose advice he wouldn't follow. And one of the reasons that Mr. Giuliani is his personal lawyer and that Mr. Giuliani has been sort of safe from all this is he's done whatever Mr. Trump has asked, regardless of even, frankly, what most lawyers would assess to be in their client's own interest. And, and one of the reasons Mr. Trump is such a difficult client to have, as any lawyer will tell you, that a client who doesn't uh, do as you that doesn't follow your advice and speaks, you know, extemporaneously and surprises you all the time is, is a difficult client to have. But with Mr. Giuliani, you know, Mr. Trump has his spokesman, uh, whether he's acting in a traditionally lawyerly fashion or not, it's a different question. But one of the things we saw uh, come out of the Mueller report in particular was that Mr. Barr, who's the attorney general of the United States and not Mr. Uh, Trump's personal lawyer, it's not supposed to be Mr. Trump's personal lawyer. Mr. Trump has always viewed the attorney general as being an extension of his own um, you know, legal defense. And uh, Mr. Barr, in some ways, uh, proved himself to Mr. Trump, both in his conduct before and after the Mueller investigation, replacing Jeff Sessions. And it now appears that Mr. Barr, uh, will also be in the spotlight. And I wouldn't be surprised, ultimately, if this led to articles of impeachment being filed against him as well. I mean, in terms of what are the possible outcomes? Um, well, the worst case scenario, I think, for Democrats who were hesitating to do this is that they move on impeachment, they impeach the president, and then it goes to the Senate and he's acquitted, and that the president then uses that as a victory uh, and sort of uh, suggesting that the whole thing, is, as he's always said, is a witch hunt or a hoax and then uses that to sort of drum up and solidify his base support, and then a demoralized uh, uh, Democratic uh, base doesn't show up, and uh, he's he's delivered back to power. That is one possible outcome, but it's only one possible outcome. I think uh, people should remember that in the case of the, uh, there's three other historical instances of presidents being impeached. Um, the first is in 1868, where Andrew Johnson 
was impeached, and that led to a a, a, a trial in the Senate floor in which he was acquitted, but effectively it marked the end of his uh, effectiveness as a president and his eventual replacement. Uh, Nixon, 1973, of course, it was when articles of impeachment were filed and after all of the evidence came out in, in the context of the investigation that Mr. Nixon's you know unfavorability ratings moved significantly uh, such that he was led to resign before going through the humiliation of a trial. 1998, uh, Bill Clinton, of course, uh, impeached by the House and then acquitted in a Senate trial and went on, uh, you know, to to be a popular ex-president to this day. Um, you know, the differences in each of the situations are, 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 are definitely there. And I don't think one should, you know, be overly cautious about using impeachment against Mr. Trump because of uh, what happened with Mr. Clinton, for example. These charges are far, far more serious. And what we see when we look at the 1973 example of Richard Nixon is that although people were against impeachment and uh, in the beginning, once the evidence and again, the what happens in the context of an impeachment investigation is that the House's power to subpoena or call witnesses is even greater. And so that the American public has an opportunity to learn more and better details about the president's alleged crimes, that that changed the dial. So I think that it may change the dial in this case. It may not. But either way, the Constitution and the Founding Fathers are very clear that certain types of conduct rising to the level of what's called high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, as well as the crimes of treason and and bribery, are... um, are grounds for impeachment, and they're the only basis to control and keep a president's conduct within the rule of law. Because, as the as listeners will know from the Mueller report, um, the, at least the opinion of the current Justice Department is that presidents aren't indictable in the normal course, and the Constitution allows recourse to impeachment as a political process. Okay, and that political process doesn't even involve having to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that some specific or explicit crime has been committed only that a political wrongdoing rising to the level of what's been defined as high crimes and misdemeanors beyond treason or bribery, for example, um, are present. So, but even so, I can go through seven, I can say multiple different crimes, point to specific provisions in the United States criminal code, in the United States code, which um, Mr. Trump is, is potentially, if he was a non-president, uh, if he was a regular citizen, would be chargeable with and potentially convicted of. Um, and uh, he certainly, you know, also has other more abstract political crimes, which I think rise to the level of, of impeachable offenses. So we'll see what happens. The likely outcome is probably uh, because of the partisan environment that we're in, that the House will impeach and that the Senate will um, acquit and then Americans will make their judgment in the 2020 election. All right. But I think, as, yeah. All right. So we're right out of time, Jeffrey. I know we could talk much longer about this, but I so appreciate uh, your uh, thoughts on this and breaking it down for us. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk to you again, I'm sure. Jill, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, one of the issues that was raised this past week at the UBCM, we touched on this briefly with Mike Smith, was the idea of lowering the voting age and letting 16-year-olds cast a ballot. That led to a bit of a social media Twitter storm about who came up with the idea first, who brought the private members motion forward first. But it did re-spark the debate on this. And certainly there are a lot of people on both sides on the Yes Camp, 16-year-olds, 
16-year-olds should be allowed to vote on the other side saying, absolutely not. I don't want 16-year-olds deciding my political future. So let's bring in somebody who can offer us a lot more insight into this and talk more at length about this. Max Cameron is the acting director at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at UBC and joins us now on the line. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. What are your thoughts on allowing 16-year-olds to vote? Well, it, it is interesting that this idea has come up at the Union of BC Municipalities. It's also been discussed by Canada's chief electoral officer uh, and proposed by both the NDP and the Greens in this federal election. And so it's an idea that has some traction. There are countries around the world that have lowered the voting age, a number of countries uh, in Europe, for example, Austria, at various levels of government, uh, Germany, Scotland, uh, in South America, Brazil, Argentina. So it's not un- unprecedented. Uh, public opinion polls in Canada suggest that there's uh, some reservation about this, particularly on the part of older voters. Uh, but I think the ideas that recommend it or the, the reasons for supporting it would be primarily uh, that, um, A, when uh, people reach 18, Um, They often leave home, which means they move, which creates a problem for enumerating them. At the age of 16, you can drive, um, you can uh, work, you can leave home, you can pay taxes, uh, but you you can't vote. If we could get people voting at that age, uh, they would be starting to vote when they are at home, so they have a stable residence, and they are in school. And this would open up the opportunity of using our schools to encourage people to be more participant in civic life. Uh, so what about the argument, though, that, yes, while you're 16, you can do all of those things, leave home, drive, uh, work if you, if you choose to. That's not to say every 16-year-old does, and certainly people mature at different, at different uh, levels. Yeah, I think that's for sure uh, true. Uh, so the, I think there would be two uh, objections to this. One would be uh, lack of maturity, that there are many people... Uh, at that age who, who don't have the maturity uh, to vote, who don't have the knowledge or information. Uh, that's one possible uh, counter-argument. Uh, another argument would be they are still at home, and so in some sense, or many of them are, so in some sense they are dependents, and you don't want people voting who are going to be heavily influenced by others. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to know how to assess those arguments. Um, my own sense of 16-year-olds that I know is that they are actually uh, uh, quite um, uh, independent-minded. Uh, they have access to all kinds of sources of information. Uh, I, I don't think that 16, I think the parents would more, be more likely to complain that their 16-year-olds don't listen to them than that they follow their instructions uh, slavishly. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I would take uh, those objections a little bit with a grain of salt. But I, to me, the critical thing is uh, that uh, having people vote early is important because if you don't start voting when you're young, you're less likely to vote uh, as you get older. So the more that we can do to get people voting uh, early in life, the better it is overall for participation. And we do know that youth as a whole vote less than older people. Now, that began to change with the last election. We had an almost 20% increase in the number of youth voting in the last election, but they still vote at a lower rate than the overall population, and certainly lower than older people. So I think it's important to try to get more voters uh, at a younger age voting. 
And certainly there are increasingly millennials are becoming the largest uh, demographic block in our society. The last point I would make is I don't, uh, you know, we've, uh, many people here will have seen over the last few days the level of uh, youth engagement around the issue of climate change. And uh, I was uh, out in the streets watching those protests and, and participating in the, the march across uh, Camby, the Camby Bridge and just really struck by the large number of uh, quite young people who were very clear about their views on an issue like climate change. So my sense is that there's enough maturity among our youth that uh, this, this could very well work. Uh, do you think that's a that's a clear enough picture, though? And, and I would agree with you. Seeing the crowds out on Friday uh, was overwhelming in some cases and just amazing to see uh, the people crossing the bridge and in all the various uh, different locations. Does that translate, though, to somebody who is is educated and takes the time to look at issues and to make... And, and I suppose not to say that every adult makes educated and informed decisions when voting, but does that translate to a young person doing enough research and knowing the issues before voting? Yeah, I spent a lot of time with young people who are interested in becoming more active in politics, both at the level of high school and uh, uh, in, in the university. And one of the things that I find really remarkable is that for those who don't vote or do not participate, they will often say, the reason I don't vote uh, is that I just don't feel like I'm competent. I don't know enough about the issues. I don't know how to make this decision. It's too hard for me to figure out where I stand on the issues or to assess the, uh, the platforms that the parties are putting forward. To my mind, that's a little bit unfortunate because I really do believe that uh, we all are, uh, have the, ca- the capacity um, to uh, look at the life we're living, look at the things that matter to us that we care about, uh, and find ways of connecting that to larger public policy issues. We, we just need encouragement to do it. We need the inducement to do it. We need to ask ourselves, why does this election matter to us? Why should I care? Why, you know, do, do we need uh, action on climate change? Well, certainly for young people, that's going to matter more to them than it's going to matter to older voters. Um, so if that's an issue they care about, they can then look at the political parties and see, well, what are the political parties offering? Or if they care fundamentally about, is there going to be a job for me in the, in the, in the labor market when I enter the workforce? Look at what the parties are offering in terms of uh, job, job creation policies. So I don't think that making those connections is actually that hard, but I'm not sure that we spend enough time or create enough opportunities for people to do that. And that's one of the reasons why I think that having conversations in the classroom about politics, having a bit more of an investment in civic education at that level could go a long way. And then I think the other thing we can do is is use social media more. Uh, We know that youth are actively engaged in social media, um, and I know that a lot of young people enjoy things like Vote Compass, where you can go uh, to a website uh, where you uh, state your position on a range of issues, and then it indicates which political party you're closest to. So tools like that, I think, are really are really positive. And so I think it's possible to overcome the barriers to participation. Uh, do you think, though, is there an argument to be made that life experience also has a big part in voting and helps people choose voting? And I'm looking at it in my own, my own family, and my nephew is 16, 
I guarantee you, if he was able to vote, he would vote for whoever was bringing in the biggest minimum wage. And that's the only thing he would care about because he's got a part-time job and he just wants to make more money. Whereas maybe a few years down the road, he works at a business or a few more years, he becomes a business owner or becomes more business savvy and looks at the bigger picture. And I mean, that's just one example. But does life experience, do you think, play a role in having a better understanding of all the different players when voting? I think there's certainly a lot of truth to that. And, and in fact, uh, one of the things that I do in my courses, I, I teach Aristotle. And one of the things that Aristotle said, he was, of course, writing in the 4th century BCE. Uh, and he said, you can't teach politics to young people because they just don't have enough experience. And it's a, it's a very provocative statement. Uh, but the claim was that in order to understand politics, the kinds of complicated judgments that we have to make uh, to be citizens and rulers, uh, takes some life experience. So I, I think that there's truth to that, that uh, the more experience we have, uh, the better equipped we are to make the sometimes difficult judgments that politics demands of us. Uh, that said, it's also the case that we only learn that those skills and, and that knowledge through participation. That's why conventional approaches to civic literacy uh, don't work very well. It's not a matter that we need to teach people to understand our Constitution, our institutions, and the policies that the parties are put forward, putting forward only. What we need people to do is to take on the, um, the idea that they are actually political participants, that they're citizens in our society, and that to be good citizens, they need to reflect on what direction they want the country to take what is good, not just for them, but for their com the community that they live in. And how do you do that? Well, you do it by being engaged. One of the best predictors of whether people are participants or likely to vote is how many clubs they belong to. So if you're a member of three or more clubs, it's highly likely that you're a voter. If you are not a member of any clubs, it's pretty likely that you don't vote at all. So the sorts of things that we really need to be doing is to encourage that kind of civic associability to get people out there in their community, talking to other people involved in, in civic life. Uh, that's the best uh, engine of, of, of democratic education. And young people, while they are new at this, uh, the only way they're going to learn it is by getting involved. And there doesn't seem to be, or maybe there is this conversation happening and I didn't hear it. Do you think, would it be across the board then, when we talk about lowering the voting age, would it be, does it matter if we're talking about civic politics, provincial or federal? Well, that's a great question, actually, because I think that maybe one way to approach this would be to start by experimenting at the civic level. Um, civic politics are the level of government, uh, or the municipal politics, the level of government that is closest to the citizen. The issues there are very concrete ones of, you know, uh, garbage disposal, of water, of, 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 of taxes on property, and so forth. Um, it, it, you know, one could, one could begin uh, by lowering the voting age just at the municipal level and seeing if that works. And if it, if it does seem to work and it induces people to, to get more involved, um, that would be great. Uh, and then you might be able to extend that to other levels of government. <laughs> so, I can see the announcement. The good news is you get to vote. The bad news is you can only vote for Park Board. Or school board, maybe. Or school board. There you go. Um, all right. Well, it's a, an interesting one for sure. Max, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Really appreciate it. And we will talk to you again soon. My pleasure, Jill.